So, okay, well, this is the first of a series of talks, and we have our first slide up on the screen. Let me, hopefully, my clicker works. The book of Revelation. How many of you like the book of Revelation? You like the book of Revelation? Uh, it's really, it is my favorite book in the Bible. There is so much power in this book. The first sentence says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of Jesus in Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And there's other, also a lot of other things. There's uh, beasts and, and a dragon, and there's horns and kings and a woman riding a beast in Revelation chapter 17. And that's what our focus is tonight. Uh, we've been, I think the scripture reading was Revelation 17 verse 1. So we're going to talk about this. I've actually written a book that just came out. Uh, I'll just let you know, I have been studying Revelation chapter 17 for probably about two years. And it's been a long journey trying to figure out this chapter. Revelation 17 is not an easy chapter to figure out. I don't know if you, how many of you are aware of that, Uh, And when I first started reading it, I just had this, well, I've read it off and on for for many years, but about two years ago, just this conviction just came to me that I really needed to just dive in to that chapter. It's one of the most mysterious chapters in the entire Bible. And I've been studying it and pondering it, and I've been wrestling with it. And there were times when I thought I had some things figured out, and then there were some roadblocks that things didn't make sense, and then I had to work through those, and I just kept praying, Lord, help me to understand this chapter. There must be a reason why you're impressing me to just keep studying and studying and studying this. And it's been a real journey for me, and uh, the journey's not over. There's still more. I'm sure there's more that I need to learn in this chapter, but the time finally came after putting a lot of pieces together and praying and talking to people uh, point by point, that I finally came to the conviction that now is the time for me to go public with this material. So I have a book. You can see it on the screen. Uh, It just came out, quite a dramatic title, The Bloody Woman and the Seven-Headed Beast. Uh, I've written a lot of books, and I've, I've learned that Titles get people's attention. So we picked a real attention getter. And uh, the lady that's there on the screen there that's riding that beast, she's actually uh, somebody that uh, our ministry hired to come into our studio. And uh, one of our uh, designers, our producer, photographed her and worked with the cover and finally put this together. So there it is. And our ministry actually has... uh, has a publicist that we've hired. And just within the last couple of days, she has sent out a press release to major media, uh, mainstream Christian media. Uh, And we're hoping for some interviews on some major shows to talk about Revelation 17 and current events. So you can maybe add that to your prayers. And we are hoping... Uh, that God will will truly bless. This chapter is really a monumental chapter. It is shocking. It is hard-hitting. It is straightforward. And yet in the middle of it is the Lamb, is Jesus Christ. He's right in the middle of Revelation 17. So what my book does uh, is it goes through every verse in the chapter, point by point. And so what we're going to do this weekend is we are going to go verse by verse right through, and we are going to study what the chapter's about. Actually, let me go back. My slide advanced too far on me. Maybe I pushed the button twice. There we go. Part one. Part one of four parts. Identifying the bloody woman. Who is this woman sitting on a beast in Revelation chapter 17? Uh, Tomorrow, we're going to look at part two, which is identifying the seven-headed beast. Who is that beast? And what is this talking about? And then the third third meeting is uh, 
Also from Revelation 17, it's called, And There There Are Ten Kings. Revelation 17 talks about five kings that are fallen, one king that is, the other king that's not yet come. Have you read that? And when he comes, he continues for a short space. And then it talks about the beast that was and is not, and he will ascend out of the bottomless pit, and he will go into perdition. So we're going to study all these things. And the last meaning is called ten horns at war with the lamb, because it talks about that also in, in chapter 17. So we are in for a ride. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of ways that we can go with this chapter. I was reading a book not too long ago, and I read nine different interpretations of some of these verses. So there's a lot of views. And I'll let you know right up front that my goal is to, as much as possible, to avoid speculation. I'm not into speculation. I'm into, into the book I'm into trying to find solid Bible truth uh, in order for me to go public with something. You know, I have to have a pretty good conviction that I've got a handle on what I'm talking about or I'm, I wouldn't be doing this. So, and I'll also tell you, this is the first time I've ever really preached on this subject. Uh, this is the first, the book just came out. And when I thought about what should I talk about, I thought, well, the book's about to come out. This will be perfect for me to go to Heartland and to go through a series on this. So I've been working on my talks and putting my slides together. And so this is a first for me. You're kind of a test audience. <laughs> and uh, I, I just, I believe that God is going to bless. I really do. And I, I believe you're going to be blessed. I'm going to be blessed. It's just a privilege to be able to share these truths. And my hope and my desire, and we'll pray in just a second, uh, is that the lights will connect. You know, the lights will go on, the dots will connect. And when this is all over, you're, you're just going to be really convicted and moved to share God's word with others. Because time is running out. We don't have a lot of time left down here. And really, that's good, isn't it? Uh, if we're ready for Jesus to come, our greatest desire is to, is to go home and be with him. As beautiful as this campus is, it's nothing like heaven. Isn't that right? God has a beautiful uh, place for us that he's preparing, and he wants us to be there. So let's open our Bibles to Revelation 17. Slide this over and give myself a little more room with my Bible here. And I'd like to kneel and pray. And then we're going to dive right in to part one. We're going to look at a big subject and see how the Lord leads us. And if your knees are bad, you know, don't feel like you have to kneel. I know, I understand. If, you know, age sometimes has its way of <laughs> affecting our bodies. So let's pray. Dear God in heaven, I'm grateful to be here. Thank you for this group that has come together. And I know there are others, uh, probably many, that are watching online. And we pray that you will bless all of us. We are living in amazing times. A lot is happening. A lot has happened this, this last week in America. And we pray that you will help us to understand what is happening in the world, what the Bible says, what's coming, and help us above all to draw close to Jesus, close to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and give us strength to stand for you in these difficult days. Lord, please send the Holy Spirit. I've been waiting for this time to share from Revelation 17 and we just pray that you will bless, that we will know that you are here with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. This is going to be, this is going to be quite an event. Revelation 17. Okay. Let's 
start with verse 1. 17.1. John wrote, There came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and he talked with me. Now, first point is that this chapter takes us down to the end times because the angel who comes and talks to John is one of the seven angels that has the seven last plagues. And the seven last plagues are the final plagues that are going to come upon the world right before Jesus comes. And those plagues haven't come yet. They're still ahead of us. So I want to just make that point that this chapter begins with an end-time context. One of the angels. And we don't, when we often think about the seven last plagues, we don't generally think about the individual angels that are pouring out these plagues as being you know, individual angels that you might get to meet someday. You might get to meet, you know, the first angel who poured out his vial, and then the second angel who poured out his vial, and the third angel who poured out his vial. But these angels are real. Uh, We don't know their names, but I imagine that they have names. And when uh, one of them came over to John, they had a conversation. He talked to him. One of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, he came and he talked with me. And he said to me, he said, come here. Come here. I will show you the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters. So we're dealing with... uh, with a whore, a prostitute. And John refers to, or the angel refers to this prostitute as the great whore. Pretty impressive. This is the woman. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to go through a whole list of characteristics. What the Bible says, what the angel said, about this woman, and you'll see them on the screen one by one by one, and then when we're done putting them all together, I believe we will be able to identify who this woman is. Now, uh, one of the principles that I have adopted as I have studied Revelation 17 uh, is a principle that I call the weight of evidence principle. And, And that principle means that you look at the big picture You put all the pieces together, and then you come to a conclusion. The weight of evidence principle. So that's where we're starting. And John is uh, told by the angel, the angel says, I'm going to show you the judgment that is going to come upon this great whore. And notice where she sits. It says in this verse that she sits on many waters. Many waters. Now, in order to know what that means, many waters, we just have to go down to verse 15. So just jot down to verse 15. The angel then continued to talk to John. And John said, he says to me, the waters which you saw. Where the whore sits, what do do the waters represent? It says, people, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Now, here's another principle that I've adopted. I've got a few principles I'll I'll share with you. We've got the weight of evidence principle. And another principle is called, I, I call it the symbol to literal principle. And that principle is that when... An angel or John sees in vision something that is symbolic. And then when an angel interprets 
what he saw, which is symbolic, you'll see this again and again and again. He interprets this and then applies it literally. So the symbol to literal principle. Make sense? And we see this right in this verse. The waters which you saw, and the waters were symbolic, which you saw where the horse sits, are people, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So the water represents a whole lot of people. And this also tells us, because the woman is sitting there on this water, it also tells us that uh, another clue to putting the pieces together is that this uh, woman has worldwide influence. She's sitting upon multitudes, peoples, nations, languages, and she is, a, she is the great whore. Follow me? Make sense? Okay, so that's the second point. Global influence. Now, as you go down to the next verse, verse 2, let's see if this will work. Yes, you know, I don't even actually need this pointer. I could just use this computer right here. Push the button on here. It says in verse 2 that with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. So that's another clue that this uh, woman is involved with kings. She's involved with royalty. She, uh, she operates in very high circles when it comes to what's happening in this world. And actually the word fornication has to do with, well, we know what fornication is in, in normal life. You know, when two people are married, uh, they're married, and then they have relations after married, after marriage. But if you're not married, and if you are involved with somebody else uh, that's not your husband or your wife, then that's called fornication. It is, it is illegal in the sight of, of God. It's a violation of his commandments. It's, it's an illicit, immoral relationship. And the fact that this great whore commits fornication with the kings of the earth tells us that she is involved with kings in a way that is, is unlawful. And as we'll see as we go farther, uh, kings have legislative power, state power. And the woman is involved with the kings and their, their legislative uh, abilities are enlisted in behalf of the woman. And that's wrong in the sight of God. So that is another point. She is uh, involved with state power. And then the text says that the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So we're talking about a great whore. She's, she has global influence. She's uh, involved in illicit relationships with kings and governments. And the people of the earth, the inhabitants of the earth, become drunk with her wine. And her wine has to do with her false doctrines, her false teachings that the people of the earth drink up. So we're dealing with something big here, aren't we? Something global is going on in this, in this chapter. And a, a lesson that I've learned as I look at that is that God does not want us to be drinking uh, spiritual, deceptive wine and teachings that are not true. He wants us to follow the truth. So there's a lesson there in the wine of Babylon. And the lesson is that God wants us to have, have a pure teaching. He wants us to know pure truth. And we find pure truth in the Bible. And we all need that, right? We need to get the wine out and the truth in. So that's another... Uh, characteristic of this woman. Now, let's keep going. Verse 3 says, so, the, so John is writing, so he carried me, and what's that next word? 
he carried me away. Now, it's interesting that the angel said, he didn't say, uh, uh, John, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to you, and I'm going to show you something. He said, I want you to come here. Come to where I am, and I'm going to show you something. John had to leave where he was in order to come to the angel in order to learn what God wanted him to learn. And then he's carried away. And I'm convinced, and I'll continue to build my case for this over the weekend, that John is carried away far beyond his own time, far beyond the first century when he wrote this, when he was standing on the Isle of Patmos. This is not a a, uh, first century revelation. He's carried away in the spirit far into the future to see something. And that's significant as we go along and try to figure out this chapter. And then it says, he was carried away in the spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that led him and he was carried away into where? Into the wilderness. Right now, uh, tomorrow I'm going to explain more about this, but this is a very significant point. This is not just an insignificant word there. Wilderness is very important. He carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and then he says, I saw a woman. He didn't see a man. He saw a woman. And this woman is sitting upon a scarlet colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And as we'll see as we keep going, this woman, when John saw her, when he was carried away, and he is brought into the future, and he sees her, this woman, at the point when John saw her, had been around for a long time. This is not a revelation where he sees a woman rising up, like he saw a beast rising up. This is a revelation where he's brought into the future and he sees a woman who's been around for quite a while, for centuries. And she's been doing a lot of different things. She's on a scarlet colored beast. Uh, I did a quick Google search the other day. And uh, you can find, you know, places where, where blood, the color of blood, is referred to as red or scarlet. So this is, this is a, a beast that is really the cover of, of blood, the color of blood, the color of scarlet, because this beast has been involved in persecution, and the woman has been involved in persecution. Verse 4 says, and the woman was arrayed in what colors? Purple and scarlet. Remember that. This, this woman has particular colors. Now, in Revelation 12, there's another woman, which we'll see later, and this woman is clothed with the sun. And in Revelation 19, it talks about God's people who are clothed with fine linen, white and clean. But this woman has given up those garments. And the, uh, the purple and the scarlet of the royalty of kings has attracted her. And she has clothed herself with those colors. Purple and scarlet. As you keep reading, it says that She is decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. Now, gold is, uh, I believe, just about the most expensive metal upon earth. Gold is very valuable. And this lady is decked with gold and precious stones and, and pearls. And that gives us the impression that she is fabulously wealthy. 
she's, uh, she's just decked out with the gold and pearls of the world. She also has a golden cup in her hand. And in that cup, it says it is full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. The fornication that she's had with who? With the kings. Right. You'll probably uh, gather this as I go along that uh, I've, I've, God has called me to be a minister. He's called me to be a, a writer. I never thought I would be a writer. I never thought I'd ever write books when I was growing up. But now he's led me into writing. And, uh, but really, I consider myself to be a teacher. Uh, I taught at Weimar Academy for three years, years ago. I taught uh, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, Bible. I came out of the seminary and landed at Weimar. And I had high school students as my, my teachers, or my, my students. And I learned to kind of get down, off the, down out of the clouds and to make things as simple as I possibly can so that you know, young minds can understand. So I, I'm a teacher, probably above all, and hopefully I'll be able to make these truths as simple as possible so they'll be very clear to you. That's, that's my goal. Now, verse 5 continues on and says, Upon her forehead there's a name, and the name written, and what is that name? It's mystery. She's a mystery woman. Mystery Babylon. Babylon the Great. The Great. Just like she's called the Great Whore. So this is a very specific woman. This chapter is not leading us in the direction where, you know, it could be this or it could be that. This chapter is leading us in a direction to identify who is this great whore, Babylon the Great, that is making the whole world drunk with her wine. The Lord wants us to understand this. Babylon the Great. Now, it also says that she is, what's the word after great? Two words. She is uh, a mother. She's not just a mother. She's the mother. The mother of harlots. Now, if she's the mother of harlots, that means that she has daughters who have become harlots as well, right? It's like she's mom, and then she has kids. She's the main mother, and her daughters have come out of her, and they are doing what she does. They're following in the footsteps of mom. And isn't that what happens, you know, most of the times when kids grow up in, in homes that they often follow the example of their parents? Many times, not all the time, but many times. And that's what's happening here. So there's not just one woman, but there are other women. Mother and daughters. Now, verse 6 or it says, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Verse 6 is where I picked the title for my book. It says that this woman is drunk. I saw the woman, and she's drunk, drunken with the blood of who? The blood of the saints. And with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This tells us that this woman is a, is a persecuting woman. In the sy- symbolic imagery of this prophecy, she's a little bit like a vampire. She craves blood. She craves the blood of the people of God. Isn't that amazing? She's drunk with the blood of the saints because she's killed them. And she's drunk with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Martyrs who have sacrificed their lives for Jesus Christ. Who didn't go along with the woman. 
who don't want to be part of the daughters, who don't want to drink the wine, who want to stand for Jesus and Bible truth. And historically, this woman has butchered and killed the people of God, the saints of God. Now, do you think the Lord takes kindly to that? How would you like it if someone killed your child? You know, I mean, how do you handle that? And can you understand why there's a judgment that's coming upon this woman from God? Seven last plagues. Because this woman has drunk the blood of God's children. And I was thinking about this recently, and I, I thought to myself, just, you know, you learn so much when you study the Bible. And one thing I've learned is that when you, when you teach, you learn. And as I began writing my book and researching my book and, and thought about, you know, teaching these things, you learn as you teach. There's things that you can't learn unless you share. If you decide you're going to share God's word with people in whatever way he leads you, then you learn more. If we don't share, we're not going to learn. It's a, it's a law. So something recent, recently as I was thinking about this and sharing this, uh, I, I thought of John chapter 6 where Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Jesus tells us to drink his blood. And he doesn't literally mean, actually, you know, he's not talking about cannibalism. What he's talking about is, is taking his word into our lives, taking his truth into our lives, so it becomes like our life blood. And we're saved by the blood of Jesus. Jesus shed his blood for us on the cross. And that's the, that's the blood that he wants us to trust in and to take into our lives, the blood of Jesus. And this woman, she's drinking the wrong blood. She should be following Jesus and taking his word in. But instead, she turns against the people of God who choose to do that. And she goes after them. And she is described as drinking their blood. That's why I call her the bloody woman. The bloody woman and the seven-headed beast. Now go down to verse 9. Verse 9 says, Here is the mind, and we'll talk more about this tomorrow, which has wisdom. The seven heads, now do you think the seven heads... Is that a symbol? Yes. Seven heads is a symbol, just like the water represents all the people. And the seven heads, if we follow the symbol to literal principle, the seven heads is the symbol. And what's the application? The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Uh, I've looked this up in Strong's Concordance, and the word for mountains can also be translated hills. Seven mountains or seven hills. And the, the woman is sitting upon seven hills. And there is one city in history that is world famous as the city of seven hills. What's the name of that city? It's Rome. That's right. World famous as the city of, of seven hills. Now, going, going on a couple more texts, and then we, we'll look at the application. Uh, in chapter 18, verse 2, it tells us something else very important about this woman. 18, 2. A mighty angel cries with a strong voice at the end of time and says, Babylon the Great, and that's this lady. She is, and what is she? 
She's fallen. She's fallen, and and she has become the habitation of devils. Now, that word fallen tells us that that originally she was upright, but she has fallen away from God, away from Jesus. She's a fallen woman. She started out like the good woman in Revelation 12. But she left Jesus and the sunlight of his righteousness and the white garments of his righteousness. And she fell and she went after the kings and their royalty and the power of the state in order to support what she's doing. That's what's happening. Now, one more uh, text before we look at the application is chapter 18, verse 4. Chapter 18, verse 4 says, I heard another voice from heaven, and the voice said, and what does the voice say? Come out of her, and who is God talking to? He says, my people, come out of her, my people. Now that tells us something very important. And that is this, that inside of this woman, in spite of all of her deadly deeds and all the terrible things that she's done and all the deception and her wine and her persecuting and all these things, nevertheless, God still has his own people who are inside of her. He considers them to be his children, his people. They're sincere to the best of their ability. They're trying to do what is right. And God still calls them his own people. But he's calling them out, out of this woman. Now, um, I'll tell you that one of the dominant opinions today as people try to identify who is this woman, what does this represent? One of the dominant opinions is that this woman represents the imperial Roman Empire that was functioning at the time of John. People assume that when, because John wrote the book in the first century, that John was talking about something that was happening in his day. That's what they assume. They, they fail to recognize a number of points. The Roman Empire collapsed in 476 AD. The imperial government of Rome collapsed. The rule of the Caesars came to an end. This woman cannot be the imperial pagan Roman Empire that was functioning at the time of Christ. And there's many reasons for that. First of all, the Roman Empire was ruled by Caesars, by kings. And it wasn't fornication for the Caesars to be involved with other kings. For kings to be involved with kings isn't unlawful. So that doesn't fit. We also know from verse 1 that the seven last plagues, the angel who has one of the seven last plagues, comes and tells John about the judgment that's coming upon this woman. So this woman is going to, going to receive the seven last plagues. And the Roman Empire has been gone, at least as a government, for over 1,500 years. So that doesn't fit. The Roman Empire as an empire could never be considered to be fallen because it never was upright as a a godly empire that had fallen away from God. So... That doesn't fit. 
and the whole idea of the people of God being inside of her and needing to come out and leave her, that also doesn't apply to the Roman Empire. So when you put all the pieces together, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit. This woman is not, as many commentators say, commentaries, many people say that this is the Roman Empire in the time of John. My answer is no, it isn't. It is not. And the evidence, the weight of evidence, supports uh, my conclusion. There's really only one organization that fits every single point that we're looking at on the screen. Only one. And this application is not something I made up. It's something that uh, used to be taught, was taught for approximately 400 years by the vast majority of Protestant scholars, Protestant reformers like Luther, Calvin, John Wesley, who founded the Methodist Church, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher in London, and countless other Protestants. They knew who this woman was. And that's why they, they left. That's why they came out in the 1500s. When you put all the pieces together, the weight of evidence is overwhelming that this uh, woman is a symbol of the Roman Catholic Church system centered in Rome, the city of Seven Hills. Well, let's just look at uh, some of the evidence. Does the Roman church have worldwide influence today? No question about it. Here's a slide of Pope Francis, uh, front cover of Time magazine, man of the year, new world pope. There you see him in different settings, speaking before the United Nations, meeting with kings, meeting with uh, leaders of Islam, Judaism, evangelicals, meeting with Fortune 500 uh, CEOs at the Vatican. The list just goes on and on and on and on and on. Pope Francis is a globe-trotting pope. And certainly, uh, he has worldwide influence. There's just no question about that. What about involvement with kings? Here's a cover of a book called The Pope, the Kings, and the People. It's a fact for over a thousand years. The popes and their leadership were very much involved with kings. And part of that involvement had to do with enlisting the power of the state to support the church. There's been a lot of that that's gone on uh, in history. What about the colors? Her distinct colors are purple and scarlet. And if you look at the colors of the cardinals, look at that picture. What two colors do you see? Purple and scarlet. Exactly as the text says. The Roman church is by far the wealthiest Christian or quote-unquote Christian church in the world. Vast vast wealth. And during the high masses, they actually use a, a glistening cup. You can find pictures of this in many different, many different places. The Roman church specifically in its catechisms refers to itself as the mother church the mother and the teacher 
of all the churches. In the Protestant Reformation, many churches came out of the Roman church, but sadly, many of them are step-by-step going back to mom. God called them out, but they're realigning today with the mother church, uh, and many of them are following her example. What about persecution? Do the history books bear this out, that the Roman church historically has been drunk with the blood of the saints? The evidence is overwhelming. You can do this study on the Inquisition. You can Google St. Bartholomew's Massacre. You can Google the bloody persecution against the Waldenses. And the list just goes on and on. The Crusades, some of the things that happened during the Crusades, things that have happened in Spain, in Italy, in France. Uh, The first person who ever translated the Bible into English, John Wycliffe, he met his fate at the hands of the church. So there's a lot of history, history behind this. She has been a bloody persecutor of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. You can read Fox's Book of Martyrs if you have the stomach for it. She sits on the city that is world famous as the city of Seven Hills. She is uh, a fallen woman. When the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost and the disciples went out and began to preach the gospel, they spread the message of Jesus all over the Roman world. And there, was one, there were churches planted in many different places, and there was one church planted inside the city of Rome itself. And when you read the, uh, the New Testament book of Romans, you're reading the letter that Paul wrote to the Christian church that was in Rome in the first century. That's what it says in Romans chapter 1, to the church that was in Rome. And there was a, a, a good church there. It was a church that God raised up. But as time went on, as the Roman Empire began to disintegrate, that church became more and more political. And she left this, the simple garments of Jesus and his righteousness, and she went after the kings. She went after Constantine. She went after Clovis. She went after Justinian. And these, uh, these kings legislated support for the Roman church. That's what's happened in history. I'm kind of a history buff. I like history. My wife teaches math. She likes math. I like history. You know, I don't know if you like history or not, but when I first became a Christian and discovered that, that the Bible and that prophecy is connected to history, I got interested in trying to figure these things out. So I've studied a lot of history. And it's, it's a fact that the church that was in Rome fell and got involved with kings in a way that Peter, James, and John would never have done. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus taught something totally different. Now, saying all this, I want to make it very clear for those that are watching this online and for those who watch the recordings, those who... uh, If you choose to pick up a copy of The Bloody Woman and the Seven-Handed Beast, I want to make it very clear that I believe that God has millions 
lots and lots and lots of people who are inside the Roman church who from his perspective are his people. They may not you know, have all the information, but they are doing the best they can. They're godly people. They're sincere Roman Catholics all the way up the chain of command. And they are walking in the best light that they know. And God is very merciful. Even though this chapter is hard-hitting and straightforward, God is merciful. Uh, there's a verse I've been, I've just recently memorized. It's the last verse of Psalm 100. It says, the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. And his truth endures to all generations. I like that verse. A lot of times when I'm laying in bed at night, I just think about Bible verses. And that's been one on my mind. Just lay in bed and I think the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endures forever. So God is merciful. Some people say, you can't be a member of the Roman Catholic Church and go to heaven. I don't buy that. And the reason why I don't buy it is because Revelation 18 verse 4 says, come out of her, my people. That tells me they are people of God. God considers them his people. And maybe they don't have everything straight. How many of us have everything straight? (laughs) But God still loves them. And he wants to, his plan is to call them out before the final time when his just judgments fall in the seven last plagues. Make sense? Now, uh, in the time that I've got left, I want to share some things with you that are very, very significant. Here's a picture everybody knows of uh, our new president, Joe Biden. Today is January 22nd. Two days ago was January 20 when Joe Biden went through his inauguration ceremony and was uh, sworn in as the 46th president of the United States of America. How many of you watched any of that? Some of you watched that? Probably about half of you. Maybe a little bit more. Uh, I'm very interested in what's happening in our country. And and I watched that. And uh, it's no secret that Joe Biden's religion is Roman Catholic. He has now become the second United States Roman Catholic president in our history. Who was the first? John F. Kennedy, right. Uh, something fascinating, and I, have to, I want to listen to it again, but this morning I did a little Google search on my phone, and I've, I, I found an actual video of John F. Kennedy speaking during the, in 1960 during the campaign, his campaign for president. Somebody had, you know, they had some kind of video camera back there, and they recorded it, and you can watch it. And what happened was, because he was a a Roman Catholic, there was a lot of concern among Protestant ministers in America whether a Catholic should become president of the United States. And so uh, John uh, John Kennedy realized that he had to deal with this issue. He called it the religious issue. And so there was a whole group of ministers a ministerial association that met in Houston, Texas, and they invited him to come and answer questions about his religion and the Constitution. And uh, it was very interesting to listen to his his talk. Uh, And this is one thing he said in that talk, and I'm going to watch it again. He said clearly to all these Protestant pastors, he said, an American president when it comes to public policy, 
should not request or take any instruction from the Pope. That's what he said. He said, my religion is between me and God. And he told the crowd, he said, I stand for the absolute separation between church and state. I do not believe that I should be enforcing uh, when it comes to public policy in any way my religious convictions. I am going to stand for the Constitution. And he said, that's who I am. And it was that speech that turned the tide. And Americans felt comfortable to vote him in as president because his stand was very clear that my Catholicism is not going to influence my public policy. I can't help but wonder if behind the scenes that was one reason why he didn't live much longer after that. Very interesting. Well, anyway, so, you know, uh, Joe Biden is, is Roman Catholic, and, and that's between him and God. As long as he doesn't bring his religion into his policies. Now, I, I, I'm just reading some significant things. I thought it was significant that he personally picked a man to give the invocation at the inauguration. Uh, Jesuit Father Leo O'Connor, a Jesuit, was asked by Joe Biden to give the prayer. And in that, and I listened to that prayer, and you can Google it, you can find the full transcript. And he said in his prayer, he talked about the common good, and then he said, Pope Francis has reminded us how important it is to dream together. Dreams are built together. Now, I'm all for people working together in appropriate ways, but, and we'll talk more about this as we go into the weekend, that Bible prophecy predicts that America and the Vatican are going to get closer together in the final days. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, I thought it was also significant that in President Biden's when he became president, he gave us a speech, and in his inaugural speech, he said, many years ago, St. Augustine, a saint of my church, wrote. He quoted Augustine. Now, if you know anything about Augustine, he was a, a Roman Catholic leader in the uh, 400s in Africa, and historically, he was really the father of, a, of the development of a systematic theology that legitimatized the religious persecution of heretics. Augustine is famous for that. Biden continued in his speech. He said, this is a time of testing. We face an attack on democracy and on the truth. We, we will write the next chapter of the American story. Before God and all of you, I give you my word, I will defend the Constitution. And I thought, good. <laughs> good, President Biden. And, you know, we need to pray for him that he will stick to that. But that was certainly, that was certainly a good thing. Now, here's another significant uh, point. President Biden is personal friends with Pope Francis, and he is a strong supporter of Laudato Si, which is the Pope's monumental encyclical dealing with climate change, where he makes recommendations for the whole world to do certain things to solve a global mess. And I'll talk more about that as we go on. Um, a month before her being sworn in as Vice President, Kamala Harris spoke on December 19 at a, at a meeting of appointees that uh, Joe Biden has appointed as his climate change committee. And she said in that speech, 
humanity still has the ability to work together in building our common home, which is a direct quote from Pope Francis's 2015 encyclical, Laudato Si. So she's quoting uh, the Pope and his encyclical. We all know Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House. She is a Roman Catholic Speaker of the House. Uh, most of us know that we now in America have, have nine United States Supreme Court justices, six of whom are Catholic. Now, I want to make it very clear that just because a person is a member of the Roman Catholic Church, you know, does not mean that they're going to violate the Constitution. It does not mean that. But, you know, there's, there's influences that are at work. A lot of influences. And my point is that there is a strong Roman Catholic influence right now in all three major branches of the United States government. The executive branch, the president, legislative branch, Congress, and the judicial branch, the Supreme Court. We have a strong, there's a strong connection there. And here's a uh, fairly recent headline where Pope Francis calls for a global pact on education based on care for others, peace, justice, goodness, beauty, acceptance, and fraternity. Sounds good, doesn't it? Peace, justice, goodness, beauty. And Pope Francis is trying to bring all the world leaders together for a global pact to follow his counsel. Now, I want to again clarify that I believe that God loves Catholic people. He loves President Biden. He loves Nancy Pelosi. He loves Kamala Harris. He loves all Protestants. He loves every Jew, Jewish people. Whether He loves people whether we're Republican or Democrat. If we choose to affiliate with one or the other, he loves those who are on the left, those who are on the right, those who are progressive, those who are conservatives. He loves atheists, agnostics. He loves everybody, whether you're you know, at Heartland or Notre Dame. Isn't that right? He loves us all. Jesus loves us all. And yet, in the midst of all of, all of the things that are happening right now in our world, we need to be studying Bible prophecy. Revelation 17, verse 17, and you see it on the screen, 17, 17, at the end of the verse, it says, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. God's word is going to be fulfilled in the midst of everything that is happening in this world, in America, in Europe, with the Vatican, with climate change, all of these things. And I am just deeply convicted that in the midst of all the confusion that we see in our world, that God wants us to follow his book. The words of God are going to be fulfilled. And that also applies to Revelation chapter 17. So let me wind this up. Revelation 17 tells us that there is a great whore that is going to make the entire world drunk with her wine, her false teaching. Revelation 17 verse 9 and this is the theme of this weekend. Here is the mind which has what? Wisdom. And that's the theme for this convocation, isn't it? I like that theme. Here is the mind that has wisdom. And I want to tell you, wisdom is not when we just think we're smart. It's not when we speculate. It's not when we just spout out our own opinions. You know, that's not wisdom. Wisdom comes from God. 
Wisdom comes from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Wisdom is in God's Word. Wisdom is in God's Word, and that is the wisdom that we're going to be looking at this weekend. Let me just read a quote from Winston Churchill, and then our last text. Where is that quote? Oh, here it is. I'm getting the signal that time is over. Uh, Winston Churchill said this. He said, truth is incontrovertible. Panic may resent it. Ignorance may deride it. Malice may distort it. But there it is. There it is. Truth is right there. The last verse we'll read and then we'll have prayer is chapter 17, verse 14. The Bible says, these shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. He's above all the kings. And it says, and they that are with him, and I want to be with Jesus, don't you? Those that are with him, those who are on his side, it says they're called and they're chosen and they're faithful. May God help us to be followers of the Lamb, to be faithful to Jesus no matter what. Amen. Let's, uh, let's close with prayer. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for giving us the light of Revelation chapter 17. Lord, it's a, it's a tough chapter. It's straight, straight truth. But we need it. We all need it. We do want to pray for uh, President Biden that your Holy Spirit will help him to make good choices. And all of our leaders in Washington, D.C. And our leaders here uh, at this school and in our church. Please help us to have wisdom. Minds that have wisdom to follow Jesus, to follow the Bible, to follow the truth. Bless us all this weekend, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.